This week, is time travel just the stuff of science fiction? It seems as though the basic physics of space and time, general relativity, do seem to allow time travel. And doing science under the Nazis. In Germany in particular, scientists tended by habit to take the view that what they did should be, as they saw it, apolitical. It should be removed from politics. Plus, treating chronic HIV using unusual antibodies. This is The Nature Podcast for October the 31st, 2013. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Kerry Smith. When someone is infected with HIV, their immune system produces antibodies against the virus. Antibodies are tailored to foreign bodies like viruses, killing them or marking them for destruction. But HIV changes its shape so much, antibodies can't usually keep up. I say usually because there are some rare super antibodies that can neutralise the virus. Scientists have tried to use them to design vaccines, which teach the immune system how to respond to HIV. But that's been difficult because the immune response is slow to make these antibodies. This week, two papers look at using the antibodies themselves as drugs to treat HIV once it's already established. HIV researcher Lewis Picker has written a News and Views piece about the two papers. Nature's Marian Turner from the News and Views team caught up with Lewis. Where do these antibodies come from and what makes them so special? These antibodies come from um, patients who are HIV-infected and have a relatively long-term chronic infection. For whatever reason, a a small fraction of people who are infected develop uh, these very special antibodies that have the capacity to very broadly inactivate HIV viruses. So these are only made by very few people, these particular antibodies? Yes, and there's more than one of them. There's, there, there's a whole series of them, and they tend to fall into a few different classes. And they're relatively infrequent, and they take a long time to, to develop, which, from a, a vaccinologist's perspective, is, is somewhat difficult because the idea would be to figure out how to generate that antibody um, in a lot more people than it seems to be generated in um, naturally. But uh, nobody knows how to do that quite yet. Researchers have been interested in these antibodies in terms of vaccine development, but this new research is looking at the antibodies in a different way. Is that right? Absolutely. Scientists have been sort of identifying these antibodies and and classifying them and collecting them and sticking them on their shelf, so to speak, or in their freezer. Uh, And it turns out, though, that many of these antibodies are very potent antiviral agents. If you think about it in a different way, they, they begin to look like antiviral drugs, or at least potential antiviral drugs. So what are our current antiviral drugs for HIV? Well, we have a whole series of of pharmacologic small molecule drugs that interfere with critical processes of the the virus. Um, But the issue with the drugs is is that they they don't work on the cell that's actually infected at the time you start giving them. They work on the next round of cells. So they prevent the virus that's being produced from infecting a new round of cells, but they leave the old cells that are still infected basically untouched. And why is that a problem? Well, that's a problem because there are uh, cells that are persistently infected, even when people have been on very effective um, antiretroviral therapy for a long time. Um, They can be cells that come out of latency and re-express the virus, or they might even be cells that are just sitting around producing small amounts of virus. But those cells, when individuals stop uh, therapy, those are the ones that reignite the infection and, and everything starts over again. And so if we were to use the antibodies as a drug, what would they do differently? 
Well, a- antibodies are a very interesting drug um, developed by evolution in a sense. Um, they have two functions, really. Uh, one function is, of course, is that they also inactivate the virus that is produced. But antibodies are a very interesting structures because they're multitasker in the immune system. They um, can bring in cells that can kill cells that the antibodies are attached to. So if an antibody attaches to the virus that's budding out from that infected cell, it could bring in um, different kinds of killer cells and actually kill that cell. So it has the potential to directly affect the viral producing cell, whereas small molecule drugs don't, which um, potentially could result in a much deeper uh, antiviral therapy or much you know, more effective antiviral therapy than, than standard regimens. How have the researchers of the two current papers tested these antibodies as drugs? There are viruses that are sort of hybrids between HIV and SIV, um, which is the uh, homolog AIDS-causing virus in monkeys. These viruses have envelopes that are from HIV. And what they did is they had, there were monkeys that were infected with these so-called SHIV viruses um, that they treated with several of these antibodies, these really potent antibodies. And what they found is is a sort of a drastic reduction in the viral loads, which is the, the amount of virus that's circulating in the plasma of these animals. They work well in monkeys. Does that bode well for them as a possible treatment for people? Well, you always look for proof of principle for efficacy in preclinical models, and the monkey is probably the best preclinical model for HIV. They're not identical, so it doesn't guarantee success. But when you have a positive result like this uh, in a monkey model, it, it certainly provides a strong impetus for testing this idea in humans. Does that mean that a cure for HIV is on the way? No, no. This is sort of a baby step towards cure. You know, you can sort of consider three steps. The first step is is that you have to shut down the virus spread. Antiretroviral therapy does that maybe 99.9%, but not quite 100%. This treatment on top of it may bring it to 100%. The second thing is you have to kill the cells that are, are actively producing virus or that become actively producing virus during the treatment. These antibodies might help do that. The third thing, which these antibodies won't do, is that they won't get to the latent population. So you have to have a way of flushing the virus out of that of those latent cells. If you can accomplish all those three steps, then you can think about cure. But you know, right now this is a small step towards step two. That was Lewis Picker talking to Marion Turner. You can read the papers and the news and views article at nature.com/nature. Still to come in the research highlights, sculpting water into shapes and the modern gold rush. But first, back to the early 1930s to Germany, where the National Socialist Party, the Nazis, are beginning their rise to power. How did science fare in what became a dictatorship? In his new book, Serving the Reich, Philip Ball delves into one of the most notorious regimes in recent history, investigating how physics functioned in Nazi Germany. Could there be lessons to be learned from the mistakes of the past? Philip joined me in the studio earlier this week. Now, set the scene for us. We're in, I suppose, by this point, the late 20s, early 30s. Um, What sort of physics was being done in that time, just as the Nazis were arranging themselves and coming to power? It was at the start of the 20th century that quantum theory began, when Max Planck in Germany first suggested the idea that energy comes in these little packets, these quanta, 
And Einstein then five years later ran with that idea and said, you know, maybe we have to take it literally and that this is how the, the world is constructed at very small scales. So physicists were grappling with this completely new view of the world. And an abstract one at that. I mean, I don't suppose they considered themselves to be very political beings. How did their science at the time fit with the political situation? Well, in Germany in particular, scientists tended by habit to take the view that what they did should be, as they saw it, apolitical. It should be removed from politics. There were a few people who dissented from that, and most famously Einstein did. He promoted the idea that science should be internationalist, that it should involve all countries openly and should steer clear of a a kind of a nationalistic tendency. This is generally the way scientists think now, and it sounds completely unremarkable. But at the time, Einstein was seriously criticised within Germany for taking this attitude. It seemed to be an unpatriotic way to behave. What were the first signs among the, the scientific community that something nefarious was beginning to happen? Already in the 1920s, Germany was in a difficult position. It had, there was an economic crisis. It didn't have a strong government. So there was a lot of political turmoil, and that expressed itself, amongst other things, in a rising anti-Semitism. And one expression of this was that some physicists started in the 1920s to promote the idea that there was a peculiarly Jewish kind of physics. And this was what Einstein was promoting. And this was the very mathematical abstract physics of quantum physics and relativity. There were also, you know, Jewish scientists were being thrown out of universities. That only happened when Hitler did come to power, but it happened very quickly when he did. I I mean, famously, Hitler seized power extraordinarily quickly and turned this, you know, liberal democracy basically into a dictatorship within a few months. And one of the first measures that he introduced just a few months after he came to power was the so-called civil service laws, which basically expelled them from any role in the civil service, which meant just about all academics working in universities. What were the reactions of prominent scientists? Uh, Very little in any real terms. There were expressions of dismay from many academics and many scientists included, but they didn't amount to anything. They didn't find any effective way of opposing these measures. Throughout all levels of society in Germany, the argument was often that this was a political issue. This wasn't a moral issue, that the whole question of the so-called Jewish question of what role Jewish people should play in everyday life was a political question that academics and scientists included were better staying out of. One of your theses in the book is that this wasn't necessarily as immoral a thing to do as it might seem to us today. Uh, You don't go as far as excusing this, of course. What I wanted to try to do above anything else, perhaps, in this book is to not try to judge the situation that was going on in Germany then by today's standards. It's very easy to do that. And in particular, it's very easy to do that in Nazi Germany, where we know where things were going. In 1933, people didn't. Could anything of this nature happen again? Or is this peculiar to this circumstance? I think it's important not to imagine that every totalitarian regime is the same. One thing that does seem clear is that there's been no indication either in those cases or in others since that any dictatorship imposes a particular ideology on science that inhibits it. Science actually did reasonably well in Germany during the war. So one thing I wanted to challenge was this common view that I think scientists have that science really only flourishes in a free society. But I think, you know, on the other side of the coin, if we look within a, you know, notionally free societies, 
it's certainly not necessarily the case that science goes on uninhibited. It's very clear that there was political tampering in climate science under the administration of George W. Bush. And um, other governments dismiss science that isn't comfortable or convenient for them. Political policies tend to be much more dictated by politics and, if you like, ideology than by what the science is telling you. So I think there are plenty of ways in which politics can potentially interfere with science in any society. And I think that's why it's important that scientists recognize that what they're doing is inevitably politicized and that they need to find institutional shields, if you like, against that sort of danger. That was Philip Ball, and that was an extract from a longer interview about his book, which you'll find very soon on your Nature podcast feed or on our website, nature.com slash nature slash podcast. Serving the Reich is on sale now. Now it's time for the research highlights, read by Thea Cunningham. Sculptors don't usually choose water as a material for their art, but scientists in the US have managed to sculpt water droplets into unusual shapes. They added polystyrene nanoparticles to water droplets in oil. The nanoparticles attract each other and crowd together at the edges of the droplets. Switching an electric field on and off distorts the droplets and causes the crowded particles to jam together. The team made ellipsoids, tubes and fish-shaped sculptures which can stay in shape for up to a month. They think tailoring the shape and flow of chemicals like this could be a useful tool for packaging and delivering drugs. Find that paper in Science. There's a modern gold rush going on and it's now the main cause of deforestation in the western Amazon. Since the global economic crisis in 2008, there's been a huge demand for gold. It's led to a surge of often illegal gold mining in the Amazonian forests of Peru. The US-based team used field surveys and satellite images to map the effects. They found five times more gold mines in the region than a decade ago. It now exceeds all other forms of forest loss combined, including ranching, agriculture and logging. The mines are mostly operated by small, illegal groups. Read more in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Time travel is a sci-fi staple, with authors often spinning convoluted temporal yarns full of pesky paradoxes and confusing conflations. In Star Trek Voyager, Captain Janeway reports having studied temporal mechanics at the Starfleet Academy. But could universities in the real world ever start teaching the mechanics of time travel to eager undergraduates of the future? And if so, how do sci-fi interpretations of time travel hold up against real-world physics? I headed down to Imperial College London to put these questions to cosmologist Andrew Jaffe. He's written an essay for Nature about time travel and fiction, and I started by asking him if time travel was even possible. Well, of course the answer is we don't know, but it seems as though the basic physics of space and time, general relativity, do seem to allow time travel. Various science fiction franchises have jumped on this idea. Do you have a favourite? Are there some that deal with time travel in a more realistic way than others? Well, as I said, it's not clear what realistic actually means for time travel, um, but I suppose the ones that embrace the paradoxes of time travel. So you do, if you took a bird's eye view of the entire universe and of space and time, and you make it so that it's self-consistent, so that you know, you can trace a particle 
or a person more importantly going through the time machine and coming back at a particular time and you never have a time in which the same thing is happening or not happening. Uh, those are the ones I like the best. I guess a very good example and my, maybe the canonical example of this is a famous Robert Heinlein story called All You Zombies in which the main character uh, is actually all the characters in the story. He ends up being his own mother and father. Uh, so somehow he gets created out of nothing because he's, he's his own grandpa. At no point does he and his younger self exist at the same time. Well, no, he and his younger self, not only do they exist at the same time, they have sex. He goes through a sex change operation. It turns out he's a hermaphrodite or something like that. But it's self-consistent in the sense that if you look at any particular time, you can always ask what happened on May 3rd, 1947, and that, there's an answer to that question. The one question that of course comes up from this sort of self-consistent view is if it's impossible to change things that happened in the past, but you need to be in a more technologically advanced future to be able to get back to the past, then how would it ever be possible for anyone to go back to the past? The way to think about it is it's as if you're looking at a big sheet, and one of the directions in the sheet is really time. And so there's a, there's a law that says you can only draw lines that seem to go you know, forward. But if you're allowed to draw lines that go backwards, then those are things that look like time machines. So if we look at another example, one franchise which is famous in science fiction but also has dabbled a lot in time travel stories is Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And one thing that they often talk about is the butterfly effect, the idea that you can kill one butterfly in the past and it will change the whole future. How much does this fit with what we understand about time? Well, within, within this view that I've been talking about, where there really is one space-time, in that case you don't really get to go back and change the past. The past is the past is the past. What happened, happened. But of course, because we don't know the physics, it's perfectly possible that if there is time travel that you can go back and make a variation to the past which makes your present impossible. And that's I think famously happened a couple times in different Star Trek episodes. So what happens is they go back and they try to rescue the past. They go back and sadly let the person die who died in their original timeline or, or things like that. What do you think it is about time travel that makes it so popular in these science fiction franchises? Because anything becomes possible almost. And it's, it's a fantasy that we all have, right? We can go back and we can either see or even better change something that we we would love to be different about our past and of course for those of us who are sort of interested in science in the future this idea that we could go and visit the future and see how things are going to turn out uh, a thousand years from now or a hundred thousand years from now or even more but then come back to here and have the benefit of that is really just too tantalizing to ignore if you're if you're doing fiction. That was Andrew Jaffe at Imperial College London. News time now, and joining me from the Washington, D.C. office is U.S. news editor Eric Hand with stories about mathematical ability, storm forecasting, and black holes. Eric, first let's talk about this maths story. This is an initiative launched to try and figure out the genetics behind mathematical genius. And it's quite controversial. So this is a project from Jonathan Rothberg, who is a multimillionaire and has founded several genetic sequencing companies, and now he wants to see if he can tease out genetic markers for uh, abstract mathematical reasoning. And he has gone out and enlisted 400 top mathematicians and theoretical physicists in the U.S. We talked about a similar initiative by the Beijing Genomics Institute and collaborators elsewhere in the world to try and map the genetics of intelligence. This sounds just as difficult, if not more so. 
Yeah, it's they're very similar projects, and in fact, the the, the BGI project has, I believe, enlisted sixteen hundred people. So they actually have a larger sample size, and that's really important. Most people think that both of these projects, however, e- even with a thousand people or more. They still don't have nearly enough people to identify such a complex trait that probably has hundreds of genes responsible for it. What makes Rothberg confident that it will work out? Or maybe he, maybe he's not confident. Maybe he's just trying it anyway. Yeah, I think it's more than just trying it anyway. He's, he's an entrepreneurial guy and he's got time and money on his hands. And so he figures he might as well give it his best shot. I mean, key to it, though, is that he's picking extreme outliers in a population and he thinks that by picking you know these these math geniuses at at universities uh, the signal might stand out above the noise and do other geneticists agree that that's a good way of doing this kind of project some think that yeah theoretically it's possible i mean there is some evidence that two-thirds of of mathematics ability is is heritable but again they just think that that is a result of many many genes and and you're probably going to need much more than just 400 people in your sample all right well if they ever start enlisting people with very very average to mediocre maths ability then uh, sign me up now the second story we're moving to guinea uh, on the west coast of africa and what seems like a cheaper way of monitoring storms that's right so so guinea is a country that doesn't have very much in the way of of meteorological f- infrastructure or, or or weather forecasting and so they've turned to a US company called Earth Networks which has finished installing 12 lightning detection sensors on top of cell phone towers and then they use these lightning strikes as a proxy for major storms mobile phones are are, are ubiquitous across Africa and and the companies that maintain and monitor these cell phone towers are, are, are quite robust. And so that makes a lot more sense than going out there and trying to build your own weather stations. And so for the first time, Guinea is now tracking major storms in, in, in real time. Just by monitoring lightning strikes that are already hitting the country? Yeah, and, and, and actually more important than the, the major strikes from, from the clouds to the ground are intracloud lightning strikes or cloud-to-cloud lightning, and that was one of the major advances from this company, which, which uh, licensed technology out of, out of MIT to do this. So that's actually a better proxy for, for intense storms. They've already done this in the U.S., and, and uh, the National Weather Service is starting to incorporate that data, and they've rolled out networks on cell phone towers in Brazil and India, but they really wanted to demonstrate the technology in a place like Guinea that had no infrastructure at all and show how much faster and cheaper a network like this could be compared to, say, rolling out a a major Doppler radar system. Now, for the third and final story, uh, we were just talking about mathematical geniuses. Um, A physics genius of some note, Stephen Hawking, uh, has a very famous theory about black holes. And this week, it gets a bit of a knock. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, George Ellis, he's a famous cosmologist at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He's He's put an idea out there um, that uh, challenges uh, Hawking's 1974 Nature paper, which proposed that black holes aren't so black, that uh, because of uh, quantum mechanics, you can actually have particles escaping at the, at the edge of the event horizon, the boundary of the black hole. And over trillions and trillions of years, the black hole would eventually evaporate. 
because of this radiation. Ellis is proposing that actually, no, uh, because of this radiation, that has a very subtle distortion on that boundary for the black hole. And as a result, the, the, the particles can't escape, and so that you might end up with a black hole remnant. This actually is a good thing for a lot of theorists because they're really worried about information loss. And by keeping a black hole remnant, it's a way of storing that information in perpetuity. So this theory essentially just leaves the galaxy spotted with little pellets of black hole. Uh, So there is still something left. They don't evaporate entirely through Hawking radiation. How do you think other physicists will react to this new theory? There's a lot of skepticism. This was just a a sort of speculative paper put on the archive, which is a a place for physicists to to put their latest ideas. And, um, you know, it's it's, it's quite likely that that his idea is is not correct and, and that Hawking's uh, notion of Hawking radiation, you know, is right in some in some form. The point, though, is that um, there's a lot of uncomfortableness with the idea that black holes could evaporate and take information with them. This this latest paper is just one example of of many ways in which theorists are uncomfortable with the way that Hawking radiation would evaporate a black hole, and so. Um, there are other ideas that are poking at this theory and, and, and looking for ways around this problem of information loss. Thanks, Eric. That was definitely more information gain than information loss for me. Read those stories and much more at nature.com news. That's it for this week. Join us next time. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Kerry Smith.